You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone. I'm grieving and celebrating as we come to the end of our time with the 16th century Christian mystic Teresa of Avila and her beautiful book, The Interior Castle. Today will be my final dialogue with Jim looking at mansions 6 and 7 and getting his help to unpack some of the deep and mystical concepts that Teresa offers us in that book. Next week, we'll be uh, looking at questions that have come in from you all. So thank you so much for sending those in. We're excited to hear your thoughts and questions next week. But now let's get started with Jim on the 6th and 7th Mansion. Okay, welcome, Jim. We're back again, take two or part two, um, because I've just found these 6th and 7th mansions so so deep and there's so many new concepts within them that it was was hard to get through through them both in uh, in one session last week so we're back again in a dialogue about mansion 6 and 7 so my first question is why do you think uh, the 6th mansion is so long in the book yes well, it's by far the 11 longest. chapters right it's by far the longest i think it's Intuitively, it seems to me the reason is is that, let's say from the fourth mansion on, there's the beginnings of these, which he calls uh, special favors or mystical states of the, of the experience of God radiating out from the seventh innermost mansion. So in the first three mansions, the experience of God is mediated through our beliefs, through our consolations, through our intentions, and un- efficacious unto holiness. But in the fourth mansion, there's flowing directly from God in the innermost center of the soul is an unmediated presence of God flowing into and merging with the intimacy of our very presence. So it's a kind of an intersubjective state of oneness beyond thought, beyond emotion, beyond. And it starts out very gradually that way. So you're between two worlds. You're still in the first three. There's this awakening of this non-dual unitive oneness, uh, which creates a state of absorption, which is a kind of a quiet fascination, like what's happening. And this absorption then leads to or opens out upon the beginnings of this unitive consciousness. In the fifth mansion, it intensifies to the point that the reflective consciousness illumined by this oneness, the luminosity becomes so pure that the self and reflective consciousness can no longer be the basis for what's happening. And the self goes into a deep sleep. It's a kind of death, really. It's a kind of, it's a, kind of a foreshadowing of what happens when we die. And in that <clears throat> cessation of self-reflection, of awareness and intentional consciousness, um, th- this oneness occurs, standing free and clear, like a unitive state of the infinite presence of God, presencing itself as the very presence of the self. It's kind of uncreated in a way. So then when the moment passes, that washes back over the person. Uh, and they weren't there when it happened. But it, it, they, what happened was, one, there's a certainty that they, they were in God and God was in them. It's like a oneness they can't explain. 
but they know is true. Secondly, the desire to only do God's will. You only want to do God's will in all things. And you're a butterfly with tattered wings. You're in this state of everything suffers from a state of not enoughness. Like this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved. Like what is love doing to me here like this? This is a fifth mansion. So what happens in the sixth mansion is that that unitive state, instead of being a temporary event in consciousness that washes back over the self, <clears throat> the unitive event starts becoming ever more pervasively habitual. That is, it starts, you, instead, of, uh, instead of there being, um, what starts to happen in states of rapture is that you're, you're carried off by, by such uh, wondrous unity that when the rapture passes, it, it washes back over you. And it keeps washing back over you more and more pervasively. And it takes, I think the sixth mansion is the longest because it's like, it's like dying of love or the divinization of oneself across every aspect of yourself. So your relationship with other people and what they think of you, your physical health, finding spiritual guidance, um, uh, one's basic understanding of God and oneself, one's longs, unconsummated longings, and there's no aspect of the self that's left untouched or left unraveled by this love. And I think that's why it's like the totality of the layered interior richness and poverty of oneself being completely assumed into this love state like this. Uh, um, Is that why she gives so many examples, Jim? Because she's trying to give this holistic vision of all the different places where, yeah. where it happens. That's right. I think there's several things here. One, she's sharing us what she knows is true because she's experienced it. Secondly, she's writing this for spiritual direction for those who have experienced it because they know it's hard to understand what, like, what's happening to me. Am I crazy or what's going on? How can I learn to obey this or follow it or be realistic in it? And I think she's also offering us insight to all of us because this, the, the, the full conscious realization of this union, the reality of that union, washes back over and belongs to all of us. So even the very first mansion is itself this very mystery. It's just we've not yet been awakened to the fullness of the mystery to which we've been awakened. So in a way, this belongs to all of us, to the mystical dimensions of our ordinary experience. And it belongs specifically to those for whom this charism or this grace of unit of consciousness is, is given. And so she's offering trustworthy guidance mm -hmm. in, on, the, on the totality, how it crosses back and forth. And she also stresses, in the, in the, and it continues in the seventh mansion, the suffering continues. You know, the, the doubt that the, this feeling of being distant from God continues. It's just that the very struggles themselves are permeated by God. The perceived absence of God is itself recognized to be the presence of God, intimated in the very absence of God. And this is so mysterious and so pervasively intimate so she's very carefully walking through kind of a pragmatic pastoral clarity, trying to help us understand ourselves at this level. 
Mm-hmm. It's really helpful to hear you say that. A lot of it doesn't sound pragmatic <laughs> when you're well, reading it. <laughs> I, it, it. It doesn't, but I would say if it's happening to you, it's extremely pragmatic. Yes, See, yes, it doesn't yes. seem pragmatic if I've not gotten there yet. Go like, yeah. wow, that's pretty amazing. That's yeah. pretty amazing. But that any any bigger than life struggle we're going through, falling in love or losing love, is acutely pragmatic mm-hmm. for us. See? And that's why we look for help for someone to help us understand ourselves, like mm-hmm. uh, someone who sees me and understands me. And so for her, it's it's, it's, it's extremely pragmatic in this yes. transformative level. And, yes. and and we can know the very fact we're attracted to it means intimations of it have already begun within us. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. Yes. So there's something maybe is closer than we realize. We just lean in a little closer and see what God has in mind. You know? It's uh, it's funny you use the word pragmatic, like pragmatic mystery, mystery, pragmatic mysticism. It's like it, a, it is. It's it is a, very, um, it, it, paradox yeah. putting yeah. those two words. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Merton once said at the monastery, he said, you know, he said, we, all, we should always be careful not to assume that the collective understanding of the group is capable of helping us understanding what's happening to us, you know. Like, y- y- is it possible this could actually be true? See, is it possible? And she's actually putting words to something that's so close, maybe, it's not been seen precisely because it's so intimate. It's mm-hmm, so subtle, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so she's providing a language where we can start to be open to such things. Yes, yeah. so wonderful. Can we talk a little bit more about um, the difference between a, a psychological and a, sp- a spiritual experience? The question came up for me when you were talking about the rapture in the imagination, <clears throat> because in therapy you can you can be asked to use your imagination to see parts of yourself or to relieve or, or to relive a traumatic event, you know, and change the ending. Um, those kinds of ways we use the imagination psychologically. Could you describe what Teresa's talking about? Yes. Um, I think it's helpful to do this. To, and each mystic will see this happening over and over it kind of gets us used to reflecting on such things because they're subtle. Mm-hmm. But it, it enriches our life when we become intimately familiar with these things. So I mean, let me suggest a way that helps me to see it. Let's say, let's say first of all, and here I'm, I'm also here now echoing, um, again, Bernard Larnigan, I mentioned before, in the intersubjectivity of the mystic, Bernard Larnigan's thought is, presented by um, Mary Froelich, applied to Teresa of Avila. So I'm, I'm using that because it applies to also what I learned at the monastery. So let me just say it. Let, let's say that for all of us as human beings, um, we're, we're, we're seeking a, a meaningful life. And that the meaning of our life always includes experience, but it's, it's beyond experience. More specifically, we seek meaning in sensing we're in a relationship with a mystery greater than ourself. And the meaning of our life is found in fidelity to that relationship. Probably the most pervasive expression of this is love, that a life rich with love is rich with meaning. And that that love, that relationship to this love, 
occurs in the layered interior richness and poverty of ourselves in ordinary human experience. The ordinary human experience is endowed with this meaning-seeking love. Next, this, this process of meaning, seeking meaning and love, it starts to become religious when we begin to realize that the ministry greater than ourself, love, or maybe silence, or beauty, or truth, let's say love, we begin to realize that the mystery greater than ourself, say love, becomes religious when we realize it doesn't have about it the feeling of that which ever ends. There's intimations of its deathless nature. And furthermore, not only am I in a relationship with this mystery that never ends, but this mystery that never ends is in a relationship with me. And it goes even deeper when the mystery's relationship with me is the reality of me. Mm. So here God then, this is where she says the mansions begin, God starts becoming real to you at this level. That somehow God's relationship with me holds the meaning to who I am. That God's presence is presencing itself as my presence, and I'm in a relationship to this presence. It goes like that. And this this grows in us in kind of an emerging awareness. Like it grows, we pray, we grow, we grow closer. And this is you get, this is like discipleship. This is our faith. It gets deeper, deeper, deeper. We're living in this kind of, as in a mirror darkly. We're living in this. Thing. And this occurs in subjective intentional consciousness. That is, I reflect upon it in prayer, in an intentionality. I seek to be ever more faithful to this love that I know through Christ is infinitely faithful to me, like this. And what happens is I get deeper and deeper into it. The point that I've arrived, that vantage point allows me to see even a deeper union. And in intentional consciousness, I'm drawn towards it. And in coming into it, I see even a deeper union even a deeper union. And then I realize this can't go on forever. And what I'm really searching for is ultimacy. That is, you made our hearts for thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee, St. Augustine says. What is my homecoming? Where it's not endlessly finding an ever deeper union, but how can I come home to rest in an infinite union with the infinite that is drawing me to itself in that? And that, that's an understanding and deepening of faith, which comes through hope that when I die and pass through the veil of death, I'm going to go beyond all these mediations. It won't be my intentions, my thoughts, my beliefs, my, but it'll be an infinite union with the infinite mystery of God as glory is my destiny. Mystical consciousness is where the intimations of glory starts when we're still on earth. Mm. It's the intimations of a oneness and this is what absorption is. It's so amazing. We get very quiet because we intuit that to continue thinking would intrude upon something so amazing and delicate that's pouring itself into and giving itself to me. So it's the first taste of celestial unity of consciousness when still on earth. And I think that's the tone of it. Mm. That's the, for me, that's the tone of it. And so she mm -hmm. talks about it, uh, like the aperture widens back bigger and bigger and bigger. It gets more and more inclusive, more and more mm -hmm. um, intimately rich, and more and more uh, uh, I become less and less distinct 
from the infinite mm -hmm. mystery that's transforming into itself mm -hmm. in Hyman's face and even and I'm still here but heaven's already started mm -hmm. uh, provided I'm willing to die of love to the point that nothing's left of me but love and uh, so she's saying, how do we conduct ourselves when we're graced with this mysterious thing? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, her, that's the teaching of all these mystics, really. And uh, so, Jim, with the, that example I was giving with the psychological oh, yeah, yes, experience yes, of imagination. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So then the psychological would be, this would, and I say this as a psychologist, okay. mm -hmm. Psych see that the ego, the self-reflective intentional self, the ego, is real in its own right. Mm -hmm. Ego consciousness, my body's real, my mind is real, my emotions are real, they matter. And I seek to be um, uh, grounded and I, I seek wholeness in mind and body and self and others in the surrounding world. And when I lose that wholeness, I suffer. Mm -hmm. When I suffer, I seek wholeness, which means how can I be restored to the wholeness that was lost? And I seek to be restored to that. And if I need to, I try to get help from somebody. And this is mental health. Yeah. But mental yeah. health is people try to, people, there's egos trained to help egos mm -hmm. to be reinstated in the lost suffering that they've lost to internalize abandonment and trauma and symptoms that embody suffering, depression, anxiety, addiction. And how can I be restored to psychological grounded wholeness myself relationship with other people and therefore the psychological means it can be adequately understood at that level and jim with the psychological we use all the faculties yeah, those are the, of yeah. the uh, we, we call those the faculties of the soul so we'd use imagination we use memory yeah. we use the somatic body experience we use that's right that's that, so yeah. and the powers of the soul use that faculty psychology you mentioned mm -hmm. which is for her teresa it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a thinking me and all that it thinks, mm -hmm. the remembering me and all that it remembers, the desiring me and all that it desires, the emotion of feeling me and all that it feels, the somatic bodily me and all my bodily sensations. It is experiential self-knowledge of the reality of myself, that I'm real, I matter, I'm right mm -hmm. here like this. And that's like <coughs> intrapersonal, interpersonal psychological well-being and how do we maintain that and heal from it therefore be it could be adequately understood in those terms <clears throat> it starts to become religious it starts to become religious when you realize the inadequacy of having that understanding have the final say in who i am mm. for i sense that although i am all that I'm not reducible to the sum total of all of that. There's a certain dimensions of reality, which is where this where faith begins. Is that faith is that as in a mere darkly, an obscure certainty, that I'm in a relationship in that which transcends me. And that mystery is in a relationship with me. Mm -hmm. And by turning towards that, I find a fulfillment, a kind of a religious kind. This is not religion as dogma, and so on. that has its own place. But the, the etymology of the word religion, religio, ligio is a ligature or a binding. Mm -hmm. See, to be rebound to the origin. See? That, that, that there is a mystery beyond me. The mystery beyond me is in relationship with me. 
I intuit the meaning of my life is found in that. And I turn towards it. And so different religious traditions throughout the world are modalities of this. So for us, it's Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that we, we, we see in Christ God's presence in our life, one with us is precious in our broken humanity, knowing that through love, through a love of God and love of neighbor, love of self, we come home to God. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's religious, that I'm in this relationship, personal relationship with God, who's personally mm-hmm. in love with me, mm-hmm. personally creating me for love's sake alone, calling me to God through the realities of my day-by-day life up to the point of death and beyond into eternal mm-hmm. life. That, that, that would be then religious consciousness. And it's concretized then in our judgments and our behaviors. You see, how, how do I treat myself? How do I treat the person next to me? What's my understanding of the environment and society? How can I see through my own eyes what Christ saw and all that he saw? That kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then yeah. it's, it's religious in that sense. You know, I had a funny experience in therapy once where um, I was invited to um, imagine a scene in my life that, you know, was was painful to me and to change the ending um, and, and have someone that abandoned me come back. And uh, I just couldn't do it, you know, and I, I, um, I had no hope. I had no hope inside of me that that could ever be true, and I, I just cried and I, I couldn't do it. But then the next morning in my meditation, without me making any effort whatsoever, I was taken back to the scene, and um, the person who abandoned me didn't come back, but like a, a Christ-like figure came back and sat sat with me, and um, and it changed it changed my my pain about that experience it really shifted something like god was yeah. present with me in it and uh i wonder if things like that are yeah by the way this is where the psychological opens out upon the spiritual or the religious issues at this point because see the idea of that's what trauma is Tra- the intensity of the trauma closes off experiential access to richer, deeper realms that would contextualize the trauma, and you can't mm-hmm. get past it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the traumatized state. But what happens, uh, and the willingness, and sometimes it requires someone to be there for and with us to make it safe to do this, is in the presence of someone, we openly share with that person our inability to get past it. You know, we cry, we kind of, but if we stay with it, with a kind of a courageous gentleness, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, a new ending that was always there started shining <laughs> through, you yeah. know, the broken place. See? Yeah. And I think that's a little taste of experiential salvation because mm-hmm. the whole mystery of the cross for us as Christians mm-hmm. is the, the, the mystery of the cross is, you know, by human standards from the ego. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, we realize he's taking us to the cross. This isn't looking good. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is, it was a disaster. It was it was brutal. It was, but it, but what mm-hmm. the resurrection is is the new ending, mm-hmm. which shines through all of death, which shines through all of brokenness, and we can begin to taste that experientially, that a, that a 
a unit of the God is a presence that protects me from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains me in all things. Mm-hmm. And I can learn to abide in that sustaining to give me the courage to face things. And that's where I think disciple, we were saying this in the th- uh, third mansion to second mansion. This is where psychotherapy and spirituality touch each other. This is where we mm-hmm. do our inner work where the light of grace shines on the stuck places and trauma places and how do we let all that open up and move on mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah the the amazing thing about that experience for me was <clears throat> the effort i was putting in in the therapy session and then the gift that was given the next morning no effort required on my part just to be present to yeah, yeah. the gift of the image uh, that arrived in my imagination yeah. Um, and what I found in my own therapy, because I was years of therapy for severe trauma, I can remember just a lot of sessions, like crying with the therapist. Really, I was experiencing in front of the person what it felt like to be me in my brokenness. Mm. And I would often say to the therapist, I'm not good at this. Like, I don't know how to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know how to do and by persistently staying with it and listening to the layers of myself, see, all of a sudden out of that very brokenness. See, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness grasp it not. But all mm-hmm. the darkness can't grasp it, the light is shining within it. Yes. And then vulnerability it starts shining through. And that's, that's the miracle, really, yeah. I was really struck by a phrase you offered, uh, consciousness as consciousness. So I think you, you related it to the inner sub- subjectivity of the mystic. Yes. Um, so can you can you help us unpack that for yes I want, let me use a word this is what uh, Price she uses as a scholar she uses that word God she's referring to God as consciousness as con- like God's God's not conscious God's the word we use for the infinity of consciousness mm-hmm. and a word so, that comes closer mm-hmm. for me is presence the, mm-hmm. the God's not present God's infinite presence and the infinite presence of God is presencing itself as the intimate immediacy of the gift of my presence. Mm-hmm. So the seventh mansion is a kind of transubjective state of communion, the, of, a, of a oneness, which is a capacity to be realized. It lies ahead of me, but it's my mm-hmm. destiny. So what happens is through the mansions is we move closer and closer and closer to that innermost uh, communal state of oneness. Mm -hmm. And instead of being a pure capacity, through the grace of God, it begins to become actualized. Mm -hmm. So an actualized, it's it's a state of an intersubjective communion in which um, you and God are less and less able to tell each other apart from each other Mm -hmm. as God's destiny of sharing in the intimacy of God as infinitely as God shares in it, and your nothingness without God, a perpetual nothingness without God, is that. So that point of nothingness, like that. So in the so in the fourth mansion, the 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 the, the, the unit of mystery, the seventh mansion, radiates out and gives us mm-hmm. intimations of that unit of love, which is the quiet. In the fifth mansion, it becomes so pure. The reflective self can't be the basis for it. It goes into a deep sleep, and the unity stands clear and free like this. And then when you return, it washes back over the self that was transcended. Mm-hmm. 
Then in the sixth mansion, that unity starts to happen to you while you're awake. See, that's the thing. It, 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 it has a much broader spectrum mm. of being transformed into this unitive state that is our ultimate destiny that's starting to be actualized now out of the very ground of your uh, the thinking you and all that it thinks, remembering you, remember me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also the, the, the pain-filled you, mm -hmm. the lost you, the confused you. All this is being somehow assumed in some unexplainable way into this love that's taking you to itself like this. And you learn to yield to it and move with it and it's like that. That's really helpful. So in the sixth mention, you that's why it's such a the experience of pain is so much greater because you're actually experiencing the death of all these things that yes. you've you placed your meaning in yeah. or that, that yeah and i think what's happening to another way i put it this will refer back to merton and the true self and the false self is what's happening see it's in our finite ego consciousness that we're awakened to what transcends ego consciousness it touches us which is faith but then in the awakening, there's these little moments of oneness, little tastes of oneness. Then what happens with the people Teresa is speaking mainly to? These fleeting tastes of oneness, e each time they uh, dissipate, it leaves in our heart a longing to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed. But in order for the abiding to occur, the finite ego has to accept the demise of its stance of having the final say in who we are. Mm. It's an unto-death struggle. Mm -hmm. We are dying, we, and we are dying, but we're dying of love. So the ego has to learn to trust in God yeah. to guide its grace demise of having the final mm -hmm. say, in which we're not annihilated, but consummated in some way that's so beyond what the ego can imagine, starts yeah. rushing into the soul. It's like, mm. That's the mystery. That's why we need to yes. be so respectful of this process. You can't push the river. We need not to do violence to it. That's why Teresa says we shouldn't desire this unitive state. It would be the ego desiring to become a mystical ego. We yes. just want to do God's will. We want to walk the walk. We want to follow Christ. But then insofar as these interior dimensions start to unfold, mm -hmm. returning to the grace of God to sustain us, to guide us, to, because it's never other than the crust of the wave of where we are with respect to it is always yes. it. See? Yes, yeah. yes, being present to our own lives. Is that yes. where, right at this moment, yes. is everything. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Can I play with the words a little bit? Um, so consciousness as consciousness versus being conscious of something. So I can say I'm conscious of God's love for me, but are you saying I might get to a point where I might be conscious as God's love for me? Yeah, it's, it's like consciousness without an object. So let's say it's mm. you're not conscious. Of, let me put it another way. And this would be closer actually to absorption, but, but it helps... Let's say uh, in the arms of the beloved or at a sunset or at an art museum or a quiet hour of day's end, this awakening occurs and you sit empty-handed 
in a state of luminous amazement. So you're not thinking of anything. Mm. It's like a vivid awareness of the intimacy, the intimate immediacy of the unexplainable is granting and giving itself to you in and as your amazement of it. But there's no it to it. See, there's mm. no otherness in it anymore. Yes. You know, the namaste, the, uh, the Christ consciousness, I am that. And that's yes. what's so amazing about it. See? Mm -hmm. And then I think when it passes, I will not play the cynic. See? I will not doubt my awakened heart. See? Uh, what a fool I am to worry so the way I sometimes do. And so we ask to be liberated we're healed from what hinders us from abiding in that oneness that from time to time we take and she's offering guidance in that abiding mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you um turning to the seventh mention what struck me about it is everything gets very simple again in the seventh mention and um it's quite powerful the way this the sixth mention has all these um intricacies and you know and then the seventh mansion we drop down into something very simple do you have that experience yeah yes 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 it is let me let me tell you first how she what she's saying how i understand this to guess intuitively what she's saying let's say in the sixth mansion there are these raptures raptures are such an intensity of the purity of this oneness that the reflective ego self is so taken out of so beyond it and it keeps washing back over the ego, more and more and more awake and all that's going on. But what starts to happen in the seventh mansion, and this is where the, the, the rain falling from the river, the water from the rain falling into the river, you can't tell the water that fell from the sky from the water in the river, and that's you, this mm -hmm. unit of kind, is this. Is it, let's say in the, the innermost seventh mansion is the point at which the infinite presence of god is presencing itself as the intimate immediacy of your presence this transsubjective unitive state mm -hmm. which is your which is in god is your destiny but it's also in the hidden center of your soul and let's say as you get closer and closer to it the the love energy flowing out from that gets richer 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 what starts to happen in the seventh mansion is the faculties of the soul, the intellect, no longer gather around the ego graced with unitive experience. The intellect now gathers around the unitive experience that is at once you and God. Mm. So it's your consciousness, but in some way it's God's consciousness. It's none distinct from your consciousness. And likewise, it isn't just your intention or your desire. Like this. But it's somehow God's infinite desire merged in one with your desire. It isn't just your memory, but it's God. It isn't just your body, but it's somehow the godly nature of the mystery of your body, embodied as your body. And this is why I think, and, and Mirabai Star was pointing this out too, in the Hindu tradition of the Guru. And I think in all these traditions, to be in the presence of such a person, you get the feeling you're in the presence of God because they don't mm. have an ego, or they do have an ego, but the self of myself, the ego self, they realize itself to be divine. Mm. They also know that the ego of you is divine, you don't know it yet. So you're sitting in the presence of someone. And this is why a person seeks to be with such a person. You know, you seek to be in the presence of the person in whose presence you know you're in the presence of God. 
as a kind of foreshadowing or a promise of a call that what happened to them might happen to you. And I think that's why people like Teresa, why the teachings are timeless. They're centuries later. Mm-hmm. And because really it's the voice of God speaking through her on every sentence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from her, but through her. Because uh, she, she has that. It's like the voice of God echoing in her voice. Mm-hmm. That's the mystery of mystical Christianity, I think. And, and it helps uh, give us hope and meaning in life and in death. It does. Hear, hearing from people like this. It does. And then she says also the importance, well, the only question is how can I be helpful? Mm-hmm. It keeps circling back around to the holiness of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Said, now, since you know the divinity of the ordinary, you live in the divinity of the ordinary, in a community of divine ordinary people, how can I be helpful? And it, it's, mm-hmm. the, it's that in, incarnate infinity experience that makes and it trustworthy. A, it's trustworthy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just a different approach to life, which... Uh, you speak about so beautifully when you talk about the peace that uh, is beyond circumstance. It's, it, it's it like is. They, they live in that sense of peace. So the circumstances may not have changed at all, but yeah. the peace that they've found is... Uh, exactly. Is, I'll put it this way. Say it's a peace. It's not dependent on the outcome of the effort because it's a peace that's grounded in the holiness of the circumstance that I'm in. I seek it. But the circumstance that I'm in seeking it, I know itself to be holy, or even more. The circumstance in which I'm seeking it, I know to be ultimately God, pouring herself out and giving herself to me in and as the circumstance of my seeking. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like looking at it through God's end of the telescope. Like, mm-hmm. like what's the divinity of the immediacy of me unexplainably like mm-hmm. that? It's that, kind of yeah. thing. it's that kind of thing, I think. A whole new approach, a whole new. It's God's approach. Yeah, yeah God's approach. That's beautiful. Um, she gives a few examples of that um, state of union. So the the raindrops falling in the water, and you can't tell the drops from yeah. the water. She has the two um, rays of light coming in from two different windows, but joining yes. in the center, and you can't tell yeah. um, which is coming from which. The the idea of one flame versus the two candles right. joining in a flame yeah. and the, I, the, the idea of betrothal it, it really is true and I, and I think another piece of this is important too is this say that the, the, the two flames burn up here's my flame here's God's flame they merge mm-hmm. let's say in the seventh mansion they merge, they're merged habitually mm-hmm. but they're also merged habitually in that God's the infinity of their separateness Mm. Otherwise, the ego is reconstructing some goal again. See, mm. so somehow, it, here's another way of putting it. We we're talking about an earlier mention, I think. When I say myself, there's the self of myself, which is the self that I, I I'm worried about myself. I wonder about myself. I'm proud of myself. Then there's the my of myself, like who's the me who sees me. Now, at an initial level, the me who sees me. Is the, inter- is the internalized self of myself formed through past experiences. I internalize that. And I project that internalized past onto myself. But the more I hold that in abeyance, which is the meditative stance, I begin to see that the my of myself is less and less distinct from the infinite presence of God, 
presencing itself and giving itself to me as the intimate immediacy of the Maya myself, which you might say is the seventh mansion. Mm-hmm. But then we see that the, the God is infinitely giving itself, not just as the Maya myself, because also giving yourself as the self of myself. Mm. The incarnate situation is unexplainably holy. You know, that's where we're met in the context of what's happening. I'm with this person right now going through this. See, and I somehow sense that God is sustaining me and giving herself, giving himself to me in and as the intimacy of this, the miraculous quality of what's happening right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really appreciated too in the seventh mansion the way Teresa refers back to scripture and um, with te- for teachers like you and Richard and Teresa, it's it's the teaching comes out of the gospel and um, I think we can often forget that and and lose that ground. But she brings it back around in the seventh mansion really clearly. Yes, exactly, and she says this also in the seventh mansion of scripture. Is a, a, it's like mystical Lexio Divina. So let's say everything Jesus says in the Gospels, the deathless presence of Jesus is interiorly saying it personally to us. And everything Jesus does for any, everyone in, his, in the story, the deathless presence of Jesus is interiorly doing for us, helping us to realize that. So what happens then, every scene in the Gospel is a mystical scene. When you really look very closely about what everything Jesus does, do you have eyes to see and you do not see? Mm-hmm. That everything Jesus says is like the breaking open of what hinders us from seeing the divinity of ourselves as we are. And um, that's, yeah, that's Christ consciousness. You know. I'm going to read from uh, Mirabai's book, page 272. Uh, And so one day, while Jesus Christ was praying somewhere for his disciples, I'm not sure where, he declared that they were one with the Father and with him, just as Christ our beloved is in the Father and the Father is in him. What greater love can there be than this? We are all included here, our beloved went on to say. I ask not for my disciples alone, but for all beings. And then he said, I am in them. Yeah, exactly. See, Father, that, that the last discourse of, in, in the Gospel of John, the Last Supper, so mystical this way. And um, see, Father, that they may be one, even as we are one, in the Trinitarian oneness, that they may be in that oneness, even now, and that's then all pervasively recognized everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. I also would think for us with the pandemic and political strife, Mm. It's so easy to get done in by that. Yeah. And this is an antidote to that. You know mm. I mean, there's, there's the grounding of this all-pervasive oneness, unconquered and unconquerable, that pervades us, that allows us to be present to it and with it in a Christ-conscious way mm-hmm. as the mystery of, of um, you know, experiential salvation in the passage of time. And this is our turn. Humanity's been here before many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, life's a valley of tears. So, I mean, it's just episodic waves of grace and pain. Mm-hmm. And then how can I, how can my mystical consciousness, which is beyond the darkness of this world, radicalize my presence in the darkness of this world? 
me mm -hmm. by this love. One in myself in prayer, knowing that that oneness with God in prayer touches the whole world in ways I don't understand and how it can translate into my attitudinal stance toward the world and people and, you know. I'm gonna read from page 274, which I think is exactly what you were just talking about. As I was saying, just because the soul sits in perpetual peace does not mean that the faculties of sense and reason do, or the passions. There are always wars going on in the other dwellings of the soul. There is no lack of trials and exhaustion, but these battles rarely have the power anymore to unseat the soul from her place of peace. Exactly. Teresa talks that's really the uh, message of the seventh mansion, this it, I idea. I think it is in a way. In other words, another way of saying it to me is that the seventh mansion realization is we're not exempt from the human experience. Rather, we're woven into the human experience, sensing the presence of God that permeates the suffering even as I myself, and then my suffering then is my empathic oneness with everyone who suffers throughout the whole world, that my suffering doesn't belong to me, that my suffering, but I'm grounded in a love that sustains me in the suffering, and maybe by the way I'm present to people, they might get a touch of that, that they not be so overwhelmed by the intensity of suffering, the sense that God's with them. And I think that we're, these are um, dress rehearsals for death, really. I mean, people will come to acceptance in death. You know, you look into their face, you look into the gate of heaven. It, mm. it's, uh, it's God's the, the, the divinity of death, and it's deathless. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to habituate that paradoxical quality and share it with people. Yeah. In the seventh mansion, she, she reminds us of humility as the, the key to all of this. And... Uh, I think that's that's partly what I'm taking away from sitting with Teresa is those those hinges on the door. Um, uh, if we stay with those, we kind of that's the path of surrender, the type of surrender she's talking about. Well, I think it, yes. I'll apply to myself for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, as I share these reflections, this, and here I'm, seventy-seven years old sitting here with Maureen's ashes next to me, uh, kind of sensitized to these things and called to share it. And I sit out on the porch and look out at the water, at the ocean. And I think about my life like I could not have planned this if I tried. And I'm humbled by it. Mm. How could I claim that I've orchestrated this the enigma and the riddle, and I think everyone's like that. There's certain moments you're not ever humiliated, but endlessly humbled, mm -hmm. in that this enigmatic unfolding richness cannot be attributed to your efforts to it. And may be true that without your efforts to be faithful to it, you might be more habitually grounded in the mystery of it. But it's also true that what we're being grounded in is the mystery that transcends our efforts. It, it, we can't attain it, but it attains us in our inability to attain it. And we realize this, that we're finding in the language for what's happening to us. You know? mm. And how to be more habitually stabilized in that. 
rather than kind of theological language. Yes. It's, it, we find it in the language of our day-to-day life and, and those people around us. Exactly. Now, ideally, I mean, realistically speaking, you know, the theologian is the one who prays. Mm. So, theological language, theos, this God language, it becomes poetic metaphors of this numinous quality expressed through stories and the theology. Mm-hmm. But the, tr- the trouble is the ego um, co-ops it see, as a set of fundamentalistic answers that it can flip mm-hmm. back and quote, and it closes off the mystery of it. You know, we're all we're always subjected to that risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It struck me how she offers the why in the seventh man. She talks about why these unitive states are granted. And she says, the greatest favor the Lord could offer us would be to give us the opportunity to emulate the life his bes- beloved son lived. That's right. What I know for sure is that these blessings are intended to fortify our weakness so that we can follow in his footsteps and feel his suffering. Yes. See, Jesus saying that I have the bread that I offer is to do the will of the one who sent me. And I think for Jesus, we might put it this way. And this would be like the Christian language for the Buddhist understanding of, of enlightenment, being enlightened, mm. is that what Jesus is saying is that it's the ultimately trustworthy nature of the intimate immediacy of who I am in the present moment. It's ultimately trustworthy because it's ultimately divine. It's ultimately being poured out as God incarnate as this moment. And so what I'm called to do is see that my suffering arises, then I'm exiled from that. See? I've kind of split off into my own observing self. Mm-hmm. But the more I can be grounded in the intimate immediacy of the divinity of what's happening, and then interiorly assent to it, because love is never forced, it's always offered. See? Then that's how Jesus lived his whole life. So mm-hmm. even if you're hanging on the cross, see, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that 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 trust extends endlessly in all directions throughout the whole world mm-hmm. and we can learn to surrender over and be embodied in that surrender to god yeah she gives some examples of uh people from scripture but then also she she mentioned saint francis uh of uh, examples of people who who were very surrendered over in there yeah. they they changed their whole life but she also, for those of us who um, might not have that capacity, she also kind of warns us that focusing on a grand strategy isn't what's required. It's focusing on the community around us that is the, the place where we should focus our attention. That's a big point. She says in the Seventh Mansion, she says, Sisters, we need to be very careful not to take the big picture. It's always how we live with the people we live with. Mm-hmm. It's like that little line from Peanuts that uh, Charlie Brown, you know, I love humanity as people I can't stand. And, <laughs> and so there's this grand scale, but it's always grounded in the concreteness. What is love asking me in this situation with this person? I'll put it another way, too. Uh, you know, sometimes when we look back, there can be like our mother or our father or grandmother or grandfather or a brother or sister. Someone just grounded in the kind of the holiness of their basic goodness and their presence in the world. And often they're not aware of it. You know, they're not Mm. aware of it on purpose. But you're so grateful they're in your life 
where you're so grateful for their fidelity to their own journey. Yes. Because their fidelity to their own journey shines light on yours. And I think really, to me, that's what this is about, too, that we realize it's our turn. You know, we're to live this unassuming stance of surrender as precious in our brokenness and walk our walk. Mm-hmm. Kind of, this is how we all help each other. And and to to not contribute to suffering, but to yes. contribute to the ease of suffering wherever we have the opportunity. That's right. That having I put it as having glimpsed the holiness of life, that such an awakened person is is a respectful, nonviolent person. That it's a, they're they're a respectful, nurturing person to life wherever it occurs. They're aware to never deliberately cause suffering to themselves or another, or, or animal sentient beings, the earth. And where there is suffering, they do their best to lighten the burden of that suffering mm-hmm. as best they can. Grounded in a peace that's not dependent on their ability to do it. Mm-hmm. Knowing that the depth dimension of the effort, something of this love can shine through and touch people with something bigger than symptom reduction or something better than problem solution. Like mm-hmm. that. And I think that's where this gets incarnate as social justice. It's incarnate as the moral order, the corporal works of mercy. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it radicalizes that. But it's a type of social justice that holds this ground. It's yeah. a type of um, action in the world that holds this ground you're, you're speaking of. It is. Well, yeah. when we get to Eckhart, uh, he, he, Eckhart has one of his sermons. He says, one who understands what I say about the just person understands everything I say. Mm. And we can use Dr. Martin Luther King here as our paradigm in our mind. Mm-hmm. He says, the person who lives by justice no longer has a life of his own or her oh, own. Yeah. They're given yeah. over to justice. Yeah, They're given over to justice. But even though they have no life apart from their fidelity to justice, you sense in their presence, you're in the presence of someone who's found what all life is about. Mm. And the same is true with tenderness or mercy or love or solitude or you know we it, it's that yes yeah and that's where Teresa kind of focuses at us at the end of her book yeah. on how do we how do we live this way exactly. and uh, and it it seems like no matter what mansion we might find ourselves in there's opportunities to live that way yeah and, and don't and, forget. Two, another way of looking at it. Let's say you spend your whole life, you're reading all this, and you say, I have to admit it, I, I've been in this first mansion all my life, <laughs> and time's running out, and something doesn't yeah. kick in pretty quick. <laughs> I would have died a first mansion person. See? But if you died a first mansion person who learned from God not to trust in your ability to get to the next mansion, but trust that God's endlessly and hopelessly in love with you as a first mansion person. And when you die in the twinkling of an eye, infinity is everywhere. Mm. You die, you're not, when you die, if you're in the first mansion, uh, God's going to say, I'm sorry. You don't know. <laughs> Seventh <laughs> mansion people only. There's a big sign over the door. <laughs> but the, it's, it's, the, it's the ending of that. You know, it's really, we should yes. always remember that. Thing. Yeah, so we don't need to be desperate to get there. It's it's coming our way exactly. at some point. Yeah. In a way, that sign is over the door. Seventh Mansion people only, but we'll all be Seventh Mansion people. Yeah, we already are on, ontologically Seventh Mansion people, which is the Seventh Mansion. We're in the process <laughs> of moving ever deeper towards the realization of that and sharing it. Yeah, I mean, It's all pervasively everywhere, really. Yeah. 
sounds so simple and yet it's so so hard to find yeah but yeah. <laughs> it feels uh, through this teaching we can get a little closer. Exactly. And that, I think another thing that's true of all these mystics is, see, it's, it's, um, it's not, in one sense, it's hard to find. <clears throat> as long as you keep thinking there's something you're trying to find. See, mm. The real issue, what Teresa's raising, is it's not so hard to find, it's hard to stop running from it. Wow. Because really it's the holiness of the intimate immediacy of sitting empty-handed without answers and being led by God. You know, can I be vulnerable and safe at the same time? See, can I be empty-handed mm. and filled with hope? Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yes. That's why it's right at the edge of spiritual direction. It's right at the edge of an interaction of sincerity. Of seeing where someone's running and how, yeah, how they can yeah. learn to be empty-handed. Yeah, and that's yeah. the disadvantage of a book. If you could sit with her live and feel her presence live, I felt this way when I was with Merton, yes. is that... Um, because the thing about a book, you get the feeling she's talking about a topic, mm-hmm. and therefore you can study the topic. And there is at a secondary level the topic, there's this infrastructure to this, but really the, the essence, the transcendental essence is the vibrancy of your own soul, you know, called to this. And that's what shines out from every page, really. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift of sitting with you, Jim. Oh, thank so. you, Thank you for sitting with us again today yes. and helping us with these things. Thank you. And thanks for these dialogues with you because I think they they kind of embody the kind of sensitivities of the listeners. You know, it makes it more pervasively accessible. So I think this is its own, these dialogues is its own gift. I hope so. I, I hope it's helpful. I, I think so. It helps me. <clears throat> so... <laughs> Well, that's. I'm winning, then. Yeah, you are. <laughs> no, really. Seriously. Of course. Well, thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.